Hello. Before we jump into the show, we need to shout out our awesome new sponsor, Marquee TV. Man, I was so excited when we got the news about the sponsor. You all might remember from a few weeks ago that I talked about my new Shakespeare project where I'm learning everything I can about Macbeth. It felt like we said the name Shakespeare out loud and the marquee people appeared and said, (laughs) we gotcha. It really did. Yeah. In case you're not familiar, Marquee TV is a streaming service. They have theater, ballet, opera, documentaries. There's a bunch of behind the scenes content of productions. Basically, it's a fun way to nerd out about the arts. Yeah, it's a streaming service that will take you to the best theaters in the world from the comfort of your own sofa. I've already added so many things to our watch list. Did you know there's a ballet based on the works of Beatrix Potter? I did. They've got a little preview video of somebody dancing around in a rabbit costume. Peter Rabbit doing ballet. (laughs) I also added a few hip-hop dance shows just to balance out the dancing bunnies. Yeah, (laughs) hip-hopra. That's what they call it. They do. It's so fun. Mozart's Requiem from the London Philharmonic Orchestra and a bunch of Shakespeare plays, including Richard II starring my pretend best friend, David Tennant. And Judy Dench talking about her long relationship with Shakespeare in a master class. Yeah, I love Judy Dench. Sure. But David Tennant. Yeah, that's quite a battle there. Okay. There's a special deal for our listeners. Marquee TV is offering three months of their service for 99 cents. You get three months of all of this good stuff for 99 cents yeah. with the code SSOP. That cost seems absurdly low to me. Like first, I expected it to be much higher given the quality of the content, but also 99 cents. You, you can't park next to a theater for 99 cents. Accurate. Also, if you watch Marquee TV, you get to see these shows maybe wearing your pajamas and hanging out with your cat yeah. or your dog. Yeah. It's a good way to sort of indulge your own curiosity. You can see all the performances of Hamlet or maybe the first 15 minutes of all of the performances of Hamlet, and you don't have to rope your friends and family into all of that. Or you could watch Richard II over and over and over and over. <laughs> What's the best angle for David Tennant in Richard II? Trick question. All of them. <laughs> anyway, You definitely need to explore the website because there is a ton of really fun, fascinating, engaging stuff on there. I went in specifically looking for Shakespeare and I found a ton of other things I wanted to watch. Yeah. You can keep up with what they're doing on social media at Marquee Arts TV. You can visit their website at marquee.tv. That's marquee.tv to get three months of their service for just 99 cents with the promo code SSOP. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now the show. Hello. Welcome to Strong Sense of Place. In each episode, we focus on one destination and discuss what makes it different than any other place on Earth. Then we recommend five books we love that took us there on the page. I'm Melissa Jolan. I'm David Humphreys. We're going around the world one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Strong Sense of Place. Today we get curious about Maine. In Two Truths and a Lie, I will tell you about a man who spent three days in Bangor, Maine, 
thinking he was in a different city. <laughs> a city far from Bangor, Maine. And then we're going to talk about five books we love. I'm very excited to talk about a magical novel that's adapted from a very popular American play. And it's all about love. Oh, that's nice. I have a nonfiction book about a man who spent 27 years alone in the woods. And he walks among us now. He just came out in 2013. But first, Mel's going to bring us up to speed with the Maine 101. Maine is a state in the northeast of the United States. If you visualize the map, it's in the top right corner. Yeah. Kind of being hugged by Canada. Tucked way up there. Yeah. With the state of New Hampshire on its southwest flank and the Atlantic on the east. The capital is Augusta a lovely little city on the Kennebec River. I never would have guessed Augusta. You would have thought Portland, right? Or Banger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Portland is Maine's largest city. Yeah. It's on a peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic, and it's pretty charming. It still has a working fishing wharf and cobblestone streets and Victorian-era mansions. And you might think that's where all the hauntings happen. The ghosts of Victorian widows looking out to sea for their husbands. But let's not forget about Banger. Banger, of course, is the home of Mr. Stephen King. Yeah. His stories are mostly set in a triad of fictional towns, Castle Rock, Jerusalem's Lot, and Derry. Derry, he says, is based on Banger. And that is the town terrorized by Pennywise, the evil clown from the novel <laughs> It. Yeah. Part of his time travel novel, 112263, is also set there. Yeah. Oh, I really like that book. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, not scary Stephen King. Yes. His house in Banger is exactly what you want it to be. It's a red brick Victorian with irregular windows and a turret and a big wrought iron gate out front decorated with bats and a spider web. There are pictures. We'll put one in show notes. It's really nice. And you can see it on the Stephen King tour of Banger, which takes you to visit the sites that inspired his books. That tour is run by a married couple that owned a bookstore for two decades specializing in Stephen King books and memorabilia. Huh. The tour has more than 1,500 five-star reviews. So if you're a Stephen King fan, get yourself to Banger. Yeah. Also important to note, if you like kitsch, Banger is also home to one of the world's largest statues of Paul Bunyan, the mythical lumberjack. That statue came alive and threatened Bill Hader in, in It. It absolutely did. Yeah. It's 31 feet tall. That's nine and a half meters. You might have noticed that I said it's one of the world's largest. One of the world's largest. There are also very tall Paul Bunyan statues in Oregon, California, Connecticut, and 13 other states. Wow. Why is Paul Bunyan celebrated in Maine, you might be asking? Because 90% of the state is covered in forests. It is called the Pine Tree State. Maine is also a show-off in the ocean category. It has more than 5,000 miles of coastline. That's about 8,000 kilometers. That's a whole lot of coastline. If you straightened out that coastline, it would stretch from Bangor to Moscow. Ooh, that is far away. <laughs> yeah. The east coast of Maine is dotted with more than 3,000 islands. Some of them are private with maybe a beautiful mansion on them. Some are just uninhabited craggy rocks and others have towns on them. There are several good reasons to care about all of these water and coastline facts. Fact number one, lighthouses. 
If you think lighthouses are romantic or eerie or both, Maine is the place for you. Yeah. It has 67 of them standing guard over the coast and islands. The oldest is the Portland Headlight in Cape Elizabeth. It was finished in 1791 when it was lit with whale oil. I would imagine that would be smelly and messy. Very dramatic. Yeah. Fact number two, boats. Maine's islands are connected by ferries, or if you're lucky, a friend's sailboat. If you're more action Jackson, you can go sea kayaking and canoeing. There's a waterway called the Maine Island Trail, so you can paddle among 200 islands and camp out. Oh, that's cool. That sounds really good for people who like camping. Yeah. I'm not one of them. (laughs) It sounds romantic, though. Yeah. Fact number three, funny names. Oh. I find it really delightful when we discover beautiful destinations with unusual place names. We talked about this in our Jamaica episode. Me no send, you no come remains a favorite. Sometimes I just randomly think of that and it makes me so happy. (laughs) In Maine, the founding fathers really outdid themselves. There are funny names like junk of pork, hamloaf, lazy gut. Hmm. Maybe they were hungry. Maybe. Some are fun to say like blubber, smutty nose, and nubble. Smutty nose. And nubble. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which, by the way, has a darling red and white lighthouse that's been there since 1879 and is still functioning. And you know that islands named Mistake and Witch Island must have some pretty scary stories attached to them. Yeah. But my favorite might be Irony Island. No one can describe it, but they know it when they see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I cracked myself up. <laughs> the fourth exciting fact about Maine's coast and islands is the sea animals. Summer is prime time for whale watching and seal sightings. And if you're a puffin fan, what kind of monster isn't a puffin fan? Right. You can see puffins in the middle of summer on Eastern Egg Rock. It's a bird-only island, but you can see them from a boat tour and watch the birds pop in and out of their burrows and feed their newborn pufflings. Is that what they're called? Pufflings? They're called pufflings. Uh-huh. We need to talk about the moose. Okay. It's a state animal, and there are between 60 and 70,000 moose in Maine's forests. That's, a lot of moose. That's the second most of any U.S. state. Alaska's first with three times that many. Sure, that makes sense. I learned that the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife conducts an annual moose survey. I'd like that job. You'd like talking to the moose? Yeah. <laughs> Just show up and say, hey, Mr. Moose, what's going on today? <laughs> How are the kids? Maine is an excellent place for your Disney princess training with forest creatures. There are black bears and white-tailed deer, and also river otters, beavers, foxes, mink, and the star-nosed mole. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Acadia National Park. All of the stuff I've already told you about, the park has all of it. Plus, cycling, hiking, and bald eagles. And some really gorgeous coastline. On the bookshelf... Maine has more to offer than just Stephen King. Other authors claimed by the state include Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yep. She wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And E.B. White. Yeah. Author of Charlotte's Web. And also The Elements of Style. Yeah. Charlotte's Web was the first book that I remember reading and thinking, wow, that is some really great writing. (laughs) Wow. How old were you, precocious little tot Uh, that you are? (laughs) (laughs) Probably eight, eight or nine. 
<laughs> but the writing is so beautiful. And then later I read The Strunk and White, and I'm like, oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah elements of style. If you write anything ever, reread that book once a year. Yeah. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is also from Maine. He was America's first professional poet. He was born in 1807 in Portland. And his poem, My Lost Youth, is about growing up there. Here's a little snippet. I remember the black wharves and the slips and the sea tides tossing free and Spanish sailors with bearded lips and the beauty and mystery of the ships and the magic of the sea. That's nice, huh? And let's not forget Jessica Fletcher. (laughs) Everybody's favorite fictional author from Maine. Yeah, true enough. Other good things from Maine include sweet things like blueberries, donut holes, and whoopie pies. We talked about whoopie pies in our Pennsylvania episode. We did. There's a little bit of a controversy about where they actually started, but we don't have time to delve into that. Why don't you just tell everybody what a whoopie pie is? <laughs> a whoopie pie is a sandwich cookie. It is two chocolate cookies surrounding a white creamy filling. Some people say it's like an Oreo. I vehemently disagree with that. The whoopie pie is sort of a soft cookie, whereas the Oreo, of course, is crispy. Well, and Oreos are maybe an inch and a half across, and whoopie pies are about four inches across. Yeah. It's almost like a sandwich. Yeah. It's a cookie sandwich. I learned about a new candy when I was doing my research. What's that? They're called Needums. It's a soft candy square made from mashed potatoes flavored with coconut, sugar, and vanilla, and then coated in chocolate. Skeptical, but I'm willing to try. They look really good, but you don't really like coconut. Yeah. Finally, we need to talk about the iconic sandwich, the lobster roll. In 2021, about 100 million pounds of lobster was caught off Maine's coast. Wow. That's a lot of lobster. That's a lot of lobster. According to the website Eater, to make the perfect lobster roll, you must only use lobster from Maine. Oh. Because it grows in cold Atlantic waters, Maine lobster is very sweet and tender and not too salty. You also have to use the right roll. A split-top bun is the classic for a lobster roll, and it almost looks like a piece of white squishy bread that's folded in half. The sides are white. The top is brown like a crust. Yeah. You must never, ever, ever include lettuce, according to Eater. Okay. You have to go easy on the mayo, and it's best eaten outside near a seaside shack while listening to the waves lapping the shore. Obviously. Which brings me to what may be the best thing to do in Maine. Park yourself in an Adirondack chair, enjoy the twilight hours, and then gaze up at the stars. Oh, that's nice. That is the Maine 101. That's really good. Are you ready for two truths and a lie? I am indeed. I'm about to say three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is not. Mel doesn't know which one is the lie. Here are the three statements. One, a Detroit graffiti artist united a town in Maine with a town 5,000 miles away. Okay. Two, in 1977, a man spent three days in Bangor, Maine, believing he was in Toronto, Canada. (laughs) And three, in the early 1900s, a Maine couple invented life hacking. What? Yep. So let's take those in order. First one, a Detroit graffiti artist united a town in Maine with a town 5,000 miles away. As we know, 5,000 miles away is really far. Yeah. I'm going to say true. If you go to the charming seaside town of Biddeford, Maine, population 23,000, 
you will find a street painting. It's the size of a side of a building, about two stories tall. The picture is of a young boy in a baseball cap, and he's sitting and he's talking on a phone. Like a cell phone? Like an old-time phone. Oh, like a handset phone. Like a handset phone. Okay. It is not apparent who he's talking with unless you travel 5,000 miles to a town in Iraq. What? Yeah. In Suleimania, Iraq, there's a street painting. It's also about two stories tall. And it's a local girl talking on the phone. Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) Yeah. The project was done by Pat Perry. He's an artist from Detroit. It was part of an effort to connect fourth and fifth grade students in the two towns. The two children in the paintings are modeled on local kids. And it's a lovely project. There's a really nice video about how it came together, and we'll point to that in the show notes. Part of that project was that the children got to participate, and they added small graphics and messages to the wall. One of the things the two paintings have in common is that they both say in their local languages, life is better with friends. That is beautiful. Isn't that nice? Okay, second statement. In 1977, a man spent three days in Bangor, Maine, believing he was in Toronto, Canada. I'm going to say that's true because it totally sounds like something my Uncle Joe would have done. (laughs) That is a lie. He did not believe he was in Toronto, Canada. He thought he was in San Francisco, California. (laughs) I mean, ocean. Sure. (laughs) Or. Yeah. So in 1977, there's a German man. He's a brewery worker. His name is Erwin Cruz. Cruz had never been more than a day trip out of Germany, but he decided to blow his life savings on a once-in-a-lifetime birthday trip to beautiful San Francisco. He'd seen it on TV, and he'd always wanted to go. No time like the present. So he gets on a flight in Frankfurt, and he tells the stewardess what he's up to, and everybody's excited. Then he probably had a few. He was in the habit of drinking a dozen and a half beers a day. Wow. Yep. He probably falls asleep crossing the ocean, and then the plane touches down, and he wakes up, and the aircraft has landed in Bangor to refuel, but he doesn't know that. And the stewardess he was talking to, she's finishing up her shift, and she looks at him and says, have a nice time in San Francisco. (laughs) And she disappears (laughs) out the back of the plane. And he hears that, and he thinks, oh, we must be here. And Cruz gets off the plane. Sure. And for the next three days, he thinks he's in San Francisco. As you said, in his defense, there are bridges, there are Chinese restaurants, there are hills, there's a beautiful ocean. He thought maybe he was in a suburb. At one point, he asked a cab driver to take him to downtown San Francisco. (laughs) And the cab driver just took off. (laughs) I got no time for that. (laughs) Finally, after three days of wandering around Bangor, he gets help from a friendly waitress. She calls a Czech immigrant who speaks some German, and they figure out what's happened. And then the news got wind of it. So there's an article in the Banger Daily News. People think it's funny, but they also want to be good hosts for this poor guy, right? Sure. So within days, he's become an honorary member of the Penobscot Indian Nation. (laughs) He met the governor. (laughs) Someone gave him an acre of Maine scrubland. And then the San Francisco Examiner heard about it. And they fly him out to the West Coast. And there he meets the mayor, and he goes to the rodeo, and he gets a standing ovation in the middle of the ring. (laughs) He is then mentioned in Time and on the Today Show. And then finally, after four days in San Francisco, the examiner sends him back to Germany, and they put a big sign on him that said, 
please let me off in Frankfurt. (laughs) What a sweet story. Yeah. So statement three, in the early 1900s, a main couple invented life hacking. So we know that's true. Mm -hmm. So first, full disclosure, the man was from Maine. The woman was from Oakland, California. His name was Frank Kilbreth. He was an efficiency expert in the 1900s. He spent most of his life figuring out how to do things the one best way. He also owned a construction firm specializing in industrial buildings, factories and dams and paper mills and that kind of stuff. But that's not what we know him for. We know him best for being the inspiration for the father in the Cheaper by the Dozen movies. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) He was played by Clifton Webb in the 50s and Steve Martin twice in the early 2000s, and most recently by Zach Braff in a version that went straight to streaming last year. The outline of that story, that he was a father with 12 children who was driven by efficiency, is true. Those movies were originally based on a book one of his children wrote about growing up with him. But Frank Gilbreth was not alone in his dedication. His wife, Lillian Gilbreth, was right there with him. She had a PhD in applied psychology from Brown at a time when that was very unconventional. Yeah. I mean, that would be a big deal now. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> if anything, she was an even bigger adherent to using science and psychology to improve the workplace. Together, they ran Gilbreth Incorporated, a consulting firm. They did pioneering work on ergonomics. They were among the first to use motion pictures to examine movement in the workplace. One of the things they did was study surgery. They suggested that all the instruments be in the same place every time and that the surgeon have an assistant. So anytime you hear scalpel, scalpel, that's the long voice of the Galbraiths. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it never occurred to me that someone figured out that's what you should do, but of course someone figured out that's what you should do. (laughs) Yeah. They also champion things like good lighting and employee breaks and suggestion boxes. And all that was going really well until one day in 1924, Frank is talking to Lillian from a train station in New Jersey, and he had a heart attack and he died. No. Yeah. And now Lillian has a problem. Besides her grief, she has lost the man who is both her husband and her business partner. She is raising 12 children alone. And at that time, the oldest was 13. Wow. Yeah. And the corporate business consulting that she's been doing, the engineers that her husband has been talking to, they're not going to take advice from a woman in 1924. And now she has to be the breadwinner. So she pivots. She takes her ideas about industrial efficiency and she turns those to the home. Lillian brought the ideas of efficiency and motion studies and science to the house. And this was challenging for her. She didn't like home life. She had staff for that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but she knew what she had to do. And she encouraged women to do their own science. For example, count the number of footsteps it takes to make breakfast. Have your child follow you with a ball of yarn to measure distances you travel during the day, that kind of thing. And she wrote for magazines and newspapers and sort of developed her career. Eventually, she started working with corporations. She consulted with Johnson & Johnson's and Macy's about sanitary napkins and human resource issues. She is credited with popularizing the idea of having uniform work surfaces in the kitchen and the invention of the foot pedal trash can and wall light switches. What? Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, which, of course, we all take for granted now. 
And she became a celebrity in 1950. She saw her life played by Myrna Loy in the first Cheaper by the Dozen movie. Wow, Myrna Loy. (laughs) She hated that movie (laughs) because it depicted her as a sweet stay-at-home mom who deferred to her husband. Yikes. Yeah. Lillian Muller Gilbreth would go on to be internationally recognized and have a list of honors that range from being described as, quote, a genius in the art of living to having her likeness in the National Portrait Gallery. That's so cool. Yeah. She worked until she was in her 80s, and then she died in 1972 at the age of 93. Wow. Yeah. Aw, 50 years without her husband. Yeah. Yeah, she never remarried either. If you're interested in more her son's books, Cheaper by the Dozen and the follow-up, Bells on Their Toes, which is specifically about their life after her husband died, are said to be better than the movie. They're funny and touching and insightful. And Vox has a video on the story of the Gilbreths. We'll put links in the show notes. That's Two Truths and a Lie. That's a good story. Myrna Loy is beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she is. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you ready to talk about books? I'm super excited about my books today. My first recommendation is Grange House by Sarah Blake. This is a coming-of-age story set in 1896 at the Grange House, a mansion-turned-hotel on the coast of Maine. The grand dam of the place is the very proper spinster Miss Grange. Miss Grange has secrets. Oh. And Maisie, the 17-year-old heroine of our story, gets more than she ever imagined when she goes looking for romance and adventure during her summer vacation at Grange House. Wow. Yeah. If you like your whitewashed New England Victorian mansions to come with a whole lot of backstory, (laughs) and you're attracted to a Wilkie Collins, Henry James kind of vibe, this book is for you. It's a love letter to Victorian Gothic transplanted to the all-American coast of Maine. Before we get into what happens at the hotel, I want to talk briefly about what was happening in the United States in 1896. This was the Gilded Age. Industries like oil, steel, banking, and railroads were booming. Yeah. Names like Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Vanderbilt, Stanford, these are your big mucky mucks. These men had clout and money and did not necessarily play by the rules. The era was given its nickname by Mark Twain, In his book, The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today, he wrote, What is the chief end of man? To get rich. In what way? Dishonestly, if we can. Honestly, if we must. A little bleak, that Mark Twain. But also, maybe not wrong. Yeah. So this is the world in which our heroine Maisie lives. Her father is a well-heeled industrialist. And so far, he's been a pretty good dad. He's given Maisie a classical education and encouraged her to think for herself, much to her mother's dismay. Mom would like Maisie to be prim and proper and ladylike, thank you very much. And now that Maisie is 17, she's on the brink of fulfilling her destiny. She will marry appropriately, make some babies, 
and bask in the reflected glow of her husband. None of those things are going to happen, are they? Maisie wants none of this. (laughs) She is definitely not interested in getting married, maybe ever. And she's filled with an unnamed yearning. She can't quite articulate what she wants. She's 17, right? She's just infused with hormones and emotions. So she doesn't really know how to describe what she wants, but she knows it's not what society expects of her. And she's like burning with this feeling of want. This is where dear old Miss Grange starts stirring the pot. She is an authoress and she is mysterious. Here's the description of her from earlier in the book. All right. Miss Grange was something of an enigma for the summer guests. She did not own the hotel, yet she inspired a curious respect. It is not to be thought that she was important in any pertinent way. Rather, her magnificence derived from the fact of her lineage. Hers was a family whose roots were among the first to stretch down into American soil. No one knew precisely her connection to the men who had built this house, but it was commonly assumed she was a distant and poor relation who'd come here to live after the main branch of the family passed away. Thus, her romance derived from her situation. She was the last Grange remaining. Among the younger guests, there were the whispered rumors of buried wealth, the half-uttered suggestions of a lost love, of a secret pact into which she had entered when she came into the house. So, Miss Grange hints to Maisie that there's a connection between the secrets of Grange House and Maisie's family. And then she gives Maisie her old journals so the young girl can start unlocking the mysteries of the past. This is all catnip for you? It is. The whole shebang is told in the first person through Maisie's teenage voice. She's plucky and hormone-fueled, sometimes dreamy, often confused, and also Miss Grange's atmospheric diaries because she's been keeping journals her whole life. And she's recounting her own experiences of being a young girl at Grange House. There is plenty to keep the proceedings delightfully creepy. For example, she documented how many laudanum drops her mother took before bed each night. Spoiler, the number increased every night. (laughs) Yikes. Which leads me to all of the glorious gothic tropes included in this story. The author, Sarah Blake, has a doctorate in Victorian literature. So she knows some things. She does. And she's put all of them in here. (laughs) There are dark woods and a deep fog that plays tricks on the eyes and a raging storm on the coast. There are enigmatic conversations that trail off ominously just before revealing too much. There's swooning and fainting and deathbed requests, switched identities, a mysterious grave, and drowned lovers clasping each other for eternity. Sounds like an Edward Gorey poster or something. (laughs) Exactly. That is the perfect mental model. (laughs) This was a romp of a read, and it might make you long to visit a fine old hotel by Maine's crashing surf. There's an excerpt available online, so I'll link to that in show notes. You can read a little bit before you commit. That's Grange House by Sarah Blake. My first book is The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit by Michael Finkel. This is the true story of a guy who walked into the woods of Maine alone, unprepared, in 1986, and did not come out again until April 2013. 
I knew you were reading this book, and still, every time I hear the premise, I just am shaking my head in disbelief. I've written this premise a few times, and I'm like, really? (laughs) Well, that's what happened. That is 27 years of living outdoors, and that's 27 years of solitude. He says that he spoke to one person once during that time. A hiker was walking by, and the hermit said, hi. One syllable in 27 years. Yeah, yeah. He survived by understanding the woods and by being an excellent thief, both in the sense that he was good at taking stuff and in the sense that he was a conscientious thief, as much as that is possible. The hermit carries a lot of shame for taking things. For most of that time, he would break into people's cabins and take their stuff. Never when they were home, typically when they were far away. Most of these cabins are summer homes. And the stuff that he would take was generally low value. So a sleeping bag, a year's worth of National Geographics, all the batteries in the house, paperbacks. At one point, he stole someone's backpack from their home, but he left behind the passports that were in the backpack. I mean, that is conscientious. Yeah. This continued for so long that some of the community members got to know his tastes. He would take Budweiser, but not Bud Light. (laughs) Peanut butter over tuna fish. He likes candy, and he was a reader. So after a while, the locals started leaving bags of books out for him. Aww. (laughs) Yeah. The hermit was really good at evading detection. People took a long time to accept that somebody was out there at all because, you know, you come back to your cabin and you're missing a tarp and a bag of M&Ms. Are you sure they were there? Mm -hmm. Maybe it was kids. Are you going to call the cops about it? But when the community came to accept that someone might be in the woods, Four different law enforcement agencies started looking for him. Wow. There were foot searches. There were flyovers. At one point, they got a picture of him stealing from someone's refrigerator. But after 27 years, they didn't even have a name to attach to this guy. His name is Christopher Knight. He was only caught when a local game warden, Terry Hughes, borrowed some high-tech surveillance equipment from a friend at a government agency. Hughes set that up in a campground that Knight used to rob semi-frequently, and he waited. The book begins with Knight's arrest. Like everything else Knight does, it's a quiet arrest. Hughes catches him in the act, and Knight goes without incident. Hughes starts asking questions, and at first he's not sure whether he can even believe this guy. Right. right? Knight says he doesn't have an ID or an address or a vehicle, and he lives in the woods. And it's Maine. Winter in Maine is serious business, right? There is howling winds, and it's well below zero. It is wet and cold. When Hughes asks how long, Knight pauses, and then he asks, what year was the Chernobyl nuclear plant disaster? Oh, my God. (laughs) The book takes a run at why Knight would do what he did. I was expecting some kind of trauma, and there's still a little room for that, but It sounds more like he was just disenfranchised. He just decided to leave one day. He parked his car and he walked into the woods. He's sort of less Rambo and more Holden Caulfield. And the book looks at the reaction of the people around him. That includes people who were traumatized by this guy. The writer talks to a woman who felt like Knight had taken her peaceful cabin by the lake and turned it into a horror novel. Mm -hmm. She felt violated. But some people were sympathetic, like the woman who owned the land he'd been trespassing on for 27 years was fine with it, right? Or the guy who wanted to take up a collection for him to buy his own piece of land. This book 
did a number on me that is difficult to explain. <laughs> so first, I blew through it. For me, it was a great story, so it all came fast. And second, it was hard for me to determine my emotional reaction to it. On the nature side, as you alluded to, we last went camping 30 years ago. <laughs> it is hard for me to imagine going outside between today and 2060. Right. When Knight started his 27 years, he had never spent the night in a tent. But then there's also the solitude part. Like, I'm an introvert. I get solitude. <laughs> I'm an only child. My mother was the biggest introvert I have ever known, and I have managed coders. So if I don't get time alone regularly, I get squirrely pretty fast. But then there's this guy, right? I feel like I'm saying, I like ice cream. And then Knight says, yeah, me too. I ate a factory once. <laughs> what? And then Knight says, yeah, and if you understood society like I do, you would too. <laughs> what? If you're interested in the story of a man who spent a quarter century alone in the woods of Maine and the reactions of the people around him, I highly recommend this book. It's a great read. It's The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit by Michael Finkel. My second recommendation is The Midcoast by Adam White. This is a crime novel set in a small tourist town called Damariscotta in southeastern Maine. This is a real town with all the water. It's on the Atlantic coast, and there's a river and a lake, all named Damariscotta. It's known as the oyster capital of New England. But the drama in this book centers around a lobsterman named Ed Thatch and his family. This book is the story of how the Thatch family became the people who run the town, and their eventual downfall. It's rich with details of life on the water and has a real New England sensibility. The story opens with a Gatsby-esque party, if Gatsby had been a lobsterman in modern working-class Maine. <laughs> okay. Ed's daughter is a member of the Amherst lacrosse team, and he's throwing a party in their honor. This is a description from the narrator. His name is Andrew. As he arrives at the party with his family. They are attending out of obligation, not an actual desire to be there. As we made our way into the backyard, it became clear that Ed had taken the concept of pre-game reception in a whole new direction. What we were stumbling into was more like a spectacular mid-coast-themed carnival. There was a train of folding tables dressed in purple gingham tablecloths, a trailer-length grill blowing smoke into the sky, and a massive white tent strung with yards and yards of hanging light bulbs. There was even an inflatable lobster the size of an elephant. Someone had wedged a lacrosse stick into the lobster's left claw, and visitors were taking pictures of each other standing next to it as if they had slain the poor thing. The rest of the meadow was overtaken by players, parents, and coaches, all of them wearing purple. We waded through the small clusters of guests, saying hello to anyone we knew, all of whom looked a little confused by the surrounding festivities, but willing to go with the flow in exchange for an open bar. So to me, this beautifully sets up a few things that are really important to the story. One, Ed Thatch is halfway obsessed with his daughter's lacrosse team and all that it represents. Amherst is not quite Ivy League. It's one of the little Ivies. Right. But there's prestige associated with that school, particularly in this small town. And Ed wants that glow for himself. The second thing is that Ed and his wife are kind of tacky 
and honestly, <laughs> not very well liked. Yeah. But they don't know it. They are both filled with blustery false confidence. So they're the new rich. Yes. Three, most of the guests are there because they feel social pressure to be there, not because they genuinely want to spend time with the Thatches. And four, our narrator, Andrew, is not a fan. No. He's filled with a mixture of confusion and envy towards Ed that he thinks should be admiration, but he can't quite get there. So he's just a jumble of emotions. Is the book in his voice? Yes. Yeah, he's our uh, first-person narrator. As the story moves back and forth in time, we learn that Andrew is now an English teacher and an aspiring writer. He's living back in his hometown after a stint out in the world. He went to California and New York and Boston, and he met his wife, who is also creative. But they have kids now. The outside world is expensive. So they've come back to his hometown, and they're trying to figure out how they fit into this community. Andrew's history with Ed Thatch goes way back to high school, when Andrew worked at the Thatch family's lobster business. Andrew always says he worked with Ed. Ed corrects him and says that Andy worked for him. Yeah. That gives you a snapshot of their dynamic. (laughs) Yeah. So now, decades later, Ed is the big man in town. He owns real estate. His wife is active in town politics. His son is a cop and his daughter is at Amherst. The Thatch family rules the scene in Damariscotta. Yeah, they've won. And Andy can't figure out how this happened. Because the Ed that he knew was just a workaday lobsterman with a chip on his shoulder and a halfway crappy boat. So this is a crime novel that's not like other crime novels. It's a caper story without the tingling, close calls of a caper. The elements of crime it explores are stripped of any possible romanticism. Hmm. It's not the elevated world of a thriller where your adrenaline is racing. There's a lot of action. But it's a more somber story that depicts what it would really be like if you suddenly found out that your neighbor was a criminal. That would not be fun. Right. Be upsetting. Yeah. And dangerous. Yes. Yes. There is a thread of menace running through the whole thing. Yeah. The author, Adam White, has a few things in common with his protagonist. He also grew up in Damariscotta. Oh. He lives in Boston, and he teaches writing and lacrosse. This story feels very lived in and authentic because of those facts. In an interview, he said that when he was in graduate school, a professor told them, you might need a little time away, but eventually all of us write about home. This is his first novel, and Crime Reads named it one of the year's best books. It's The Midcoast by Adam White. My next book is Vacation Land, True Stories from Painful Beaches by John Hodgman. John Hodgman has had a strange and unlikely career. I think he would agree with me on that. He started as a literary agent, and then he decided that what he really wanted to do was write. So he quit, and he wrote. And eventually people discovered that he was funny. Somebody had the idea to put him on television. I only know him from television. Yeah. Putting John Hodgman on television doesn't seem like an obvious move. He has a very powerful nerd vibe about him, but... That also is what sort of made him who he is. Hodgman went on to be a regular contributor to Jon Stewart and The Daily Show. He also played a PC for a while in some Apple ads, and he wrote a few books. One of those is called The Areas of My Expertise, 
which is an almanac full of stuff he made up. (laughs) That book has sections like Brief Lives of Some Notable Hobos and Nine Presidents Who Had Hooks for Hands. To hear him tell it, the primary audience for that book is 13-year-old boys who are a little too smart for their own good. He calls them my key demo. (laughs) This is not that book. Vacation Land is a book of essays he's written about his life. Most of the chapters in this book, and maybe all of them, feel like a man going through a midlife crisis. But, you know, funny. He wrestles with being a good parent and with the death of his mother. And he tells us a lot about his childhood because he wants to talk about his life now meaningfully. And about halfway through, Hodgman moves to Maine with his family. He and his wife buy a house. They win a rowboat in an auction, a significant rowboat, which can only happen in Maine, I think. They meet their neighbors, whom he initially finds creepy. (coughs) Quote, like waking an ancient pack of vampires, he writes. Somebody's read too many Stephen King novels. (laughs) Yeah. There are some great stories about how the locals are protecting the home of a famous dead author. Hodgman plays along to the extent that he refuses to name the author, but challenges the reader to find out who it is. (laughs) He has a dry sense of humor that I really enjoy. I'm going to read about a page of his book. Here, Hodgman is visiting a campus to do the Samuel Clemens Address. That's a speech that a Twain professor pays someone to come and do a year-end revelry kind of thing. When this bit starts, the professor and Hodgman are walking across campus, and the professor is meeting students as they go and encouraging them to come to the talk. And it's April 20th, 420, the marijuana holiday. I have changed one word to make this slightly more family-friendly. Here's the page. One by one, he would ask them, Are you coming to the Clemens Address tonight? And one by one, they would smile and say, nope. (laughs) Young people are such natural sociopaths. (laughs) They could have lied and said, yes. Professor Mark would never have noticed their absence when they didn't show up. But why should they bother? Why lie to spare the non-feelings of this faceless older mannequin who makes mouth noises about Mark Twain to them twice a week? They were asked a question, and so they gave an honest answer. Nope. (laughs) Cody, in particular, was taken aback by the question and answered it only with a face full of guileless confusion. What? His face seemed to say. What did you ask? Am I going to the Samuel Clemens address tonight? Well, let me think. Even if I had bothered to remember this thing that you've been talking about in your class for weeks, which you have to admit, Professor, is a pretty unreasonable expectation, (laughs) even then the answer would probably be, no? Because this is Saturday. And may I remind you, Professor, it is also 420. (laughs) So as for tonight, I hadn't really thought it through, but I think I'll probably smoke marijuana. In fact, now that I say it out loud, I'm going to make it a plan. I'm going to smoke a little and drink a little and maybe go to a party. I've heard Paige is having a naked party tonight. That's something we young people do because we all look good naked and are too young to give a crap about our furniture. And after that naked party, I'll probably go out and eat two or three whole pizzas or a steak bomb. But rather than going sadly back to my room to watch Friends reruns, I will instead go back to the party. And surprisingly, I will be thinner and better looking than when I left (laughs) because I have the metabolism of a white hot sun. (laughs) Then I'll probably have sex with a man or a woman. We don't really use labels anymore. And after that, 
I'm not really sure. I might just go back to the dorm room and watch a movie. Yeah, I'll probably just watch a nostalgic movie from my childhood. Because even though I'm physically mature, inside I'm still very much a child who is terrified by the drunken, high, naked, fornicating adult I've become. (laughs) And so I'll probably bring out my blanket that I brought from home and still sleep with every night openly and without shame because all of my roommates are going through the same thing. What's that? Which nostalgic movie from my childhood will I choose to watch? I'm not sure. Probably Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, because that came out in 2005. And in that year, I was only 11 years old. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I got distracted. What did you ask? Will I go to the Samuel Clemens address? I think you can understand that the answer to that is nope. Not ever. (laughs) Ever. 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 (laughs) Ever. <laughs> I just thought that the like midlife projection on the <laughs> on the college kid was like, mm-hmm, yep. I found Hodgman to be a friend I wish I had. Right? Surprise! I can relate to the funny old white male nerd, but I also appreciated the description of what it's like to move to Maine. If you have ever wondered that, or are just looking for some wry humor from a great storyteller. I suspect you'll enjoy this. It's Vacation Land, True Stories from Painful Beaches by John Hodgman. My final recommendation is a really sweet novel about love called Almost Maine by John Cariani. Before I get into the book, we need to talk about the author. Okay. John Cariani is an actor and a playwright. He was on Law & Order for five seasons as forensic expert Julian Beck. Really? Yeah. Kind of skinny guy, black curly hair, kind of twitchy, sweet, nervous kind of demeanor. Okay. He also starred in one of our favorite musicals on Broadway, Something Rotten. Oh. And he was nominated for a Tony for his portrayal of Model the Tailor in the 2004 Broadway revival of Fiddler on the Roof. If you haven't seen Something Rotten, it's a musical. It's about a guy who was jealous of Shakespeare's success during the Renaissance. It is straight up silly, over the top comedy that takes every trope of musicals and makes it fit into its story. They solve the problem of being jealous of Shakespeare by inventing the musical. <laughs> After seeing a soothsayer. Yeah. We'll put a video in show notes. Before John Cariani did all of that Law and Order, Shakespeare, Fiddler on the Roof, he wrote a play called Almost Maine. It's one of the most popular plays in the United States. It's been performed by 100 professional theater companies and more than 5,000 community and school productions. It feels like I should have heard about it. That's how I felt, too. (laughs) It's like, when you suddenly find out that everybody knows about a thing you don't know about. It was first produced in 2004, so we probably just missed it because we were already adults by then. Yeah. The setup of Almost Maine really drew me in. I want to read you the prologue that sets the scene for both the play and the novel. Okay. This will give you a sense of his writing style. If you've heard him talk on stage or on TV, the rhythm of his written sentences totally makes sense. He has very distinctive rhythm to his speech. Here we go. There's a place in northern Maine that is so far north, it's almost not in the United States. It's almost in Canada. But not quite. Not many people live there, 
not much seems to happen there. And the things that do happen there seem pretty ordinary, especially to the people who live there. But some extraordinary things did happen there once, on a Friday in the middle of winter, not too long ago. Or maybe it was a long time ago. No one quite remembers. Actually, no one is even sure that the extraordinary things even happened. And no one is even sure that the place actually exists. But it's somewhere we've all been. It's a place called Almost. That's a nice bit. So, we're in the town of Almost. Yep. It's winter, but it's not too cold. Characters throughout the story comment on the fact that it's 19 Fahrenheit. That's minus 7 Celsius. Which is not too cold for a main winter. No, yeah. On this particular Friday night, the northern lights are dancing in the sky. And that makes unusual things happen to the people who live in Almost. The story unfolds in a series of linked vignettes. And like small-town life everywhere, all of the characters are connected to each other through friendship, romance, work, history, and proximity. And it starts with a framing device. Two teenagers, Jeanette and her best friend Paul, are realizing that they are maybe more than just friends. Mm. Jeanette walks through the town to think about things. She passes the rec center, the Moose Patty Bar, a frozen lake where people are ice skating, a boarding house owned by Maud Dudley. And as she passes each location, we get the story of what's happening to the people inside. And what's happening is that everyone in town is falling in or out of love in various ways. So the Northern Lights have a magical property to them? They do. What I found really charming and delightful is that everything in this world of Almost Maine is so literal, it becomes magical. Hearts can physically break. People actually fall in love. A character that's losing hope gets physically smaller. Two others are so happy when dancing together that they float up to the ceiling. Within this magical world, John Cariani introduces us to the beauty and difficulty of living somewhere like rural Maine. He grew up in this kind of town and really captures the gifts and the challenges of it. One of the things I responded to very strongly was that there's a lot of driving or walking around looking for something to do. You know, your parents are like, get out of here, go do something fun. And you're just thinking, where am I supposed to go? <laughs> and do what yeah. exactly? Yeah. Also, it's pretty tough to change your relationship with someone when you both live in this same small place where everyone has their perceptions of you already set. How do you get them and yourself to stop thinking of you as this version when you want to be that version? Right. In this world that he's created, the Northern Lights seem to help with that. He said that turning his play into a novel allowed him to fill in the blanks that the play leaves unfilled. I was able to describe the bleak beauty of a northern Maine winter and highlight the hardships that are part of living in a place where money and opportunity aren't very plentiful. I felt like the book gave me a chance to underscore the strain of ache and melancholy and maybe help people remember that hope and joy really can visit you when you least expect it. That's Almost Maine by John Capriani. Those are five books we love set in Maine. Visit our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com for links and details. You are going to want to see the video about the Maine-Iran mural. It's really, it's really beautiful. 
I found a couple of cute performances of Almost Maine and a really good interview with Sarah Blake, the author of Grange House. So that plus lots more will be in the show notes. Yeah, come and drop by. Mel, where are we headed for our next episode? We're going backstage and into the spotlight to explore the world of theater. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>